Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. First, a couple of announcements. I have another opening or two for consultation and mentoring for psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric NPs, PAs, or master's level therapists. You can reach out to me through my website and I'll give you a call and we can discuss possibly working together. Second, I'll again be co-facilitating a ketamine training with Dory Lewis and Shannon Hughes in Colorado this coming March 2024. I'll put a link to the training in the show notes, or you can learn more at elementalpsychedelics.com forward slash ketamine training. Today's episode is based on my clinical observations of over 3,000 intravenous and intramuscular ketamine sessions that I've done over the last six years, typically at the dissociative threshold or with full dissociation, which means the patient's are deep enough in the experience that they lose awareness of their bodies and the room, and they experience something ineffable and wondrous, invariably also very, very strange. My first two years were all intramuscular IM sessions, and in those I sat with patients throughout, while the last four years have been mostly infusions, IVs, where I sit with patients before and after the treatments. My observations do not speak to what happens in lower-dose sessions, whether oral, nasal, IM, or IV, where patients are able to talk and have some ability to interact with their therapist or guide. Another way of saying this, my conclusions today are those of over 3,000 fully psychedelic, not psycholytic, ketamine sessions, primarily to address treatment-resistant depression, suicidality, and depression arising out of trauma and PTSD. Lessons from 3,000 sessions of psycholytic CAP, or ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, that would be a very different topic and episode. Some of the most basic questions about ketamine are still under investigation, like, what is the ideal dose range? Is there a meaningful dose response curve? Are fully dissociative treatments necessary for optimal efficacy? How important is psychotherapy after a higher dose IV or IM session? And How should we think about frequency of initial treatments and then ongoing maintenance treatments if needed? I think my 3,000 sessions to date have provided some important clues to these questions, though I readily admit that what I'm about to share, this is expert opinion, which is the lowest level of clinical evidence, far below placebo-controlled trials and meta-analyses. But for right now in 2023, expert opinion is all we've got for many of the key questions that surround ketamine treatment. So let's start with patient selection. Who are the ideal candidates? Who are marginal candidates? Who probably should not do psychedelic doses of ketamine? I think patient selection is a crucial and so often overlooked step. So many ketamine clinics in the U.S. will give you ketamine if you are quote-unquote depressed. But it turns out that this is a fairly terrible ketamine screening tool to ask people, are they depressed? Or even just to give them a depression rating scale. Because... Some types of depression respond extremely well to ketamine. Some types respond partially, and some almost never respond. Nationwide, the oft-quoted response rate for IV ketamine therapy is around 70%. Now, I recently asked my medical assistant, I said, what percentage of people do you think that we're treating are getting substantially better? And she said, oh, I think at least 90%. And I have to tell you that she is by no means a sunny optimist like me. But I think she's actually pretty close in her estimate, and it's not because we're somehow better in our treatments. I think it's because I take ketamine patient selection very seriously, and maybe 
a third to even up to half of people who come to me for ketamine don't even end up getting it because I find some other sleep or medication or lifestyle interventions, which I think are a better option. The most ideal psychedelic ketamine patient has an endogenous, likely bipolar spectrum, pure or mixed depression. With seasonal worsening, with cognitive slowing and impairment, it may be a history of positive response to lamotrigine, with frequent chronic and severe episodes, and critically, more hypersomnia than insomnia. Other very good candidates include patients amidst a nervous breakdown, and I've explored this concept in depth in earlier episodes of the podcast. But in brief, a nervous breakdown is an anxiety-fueled depressive meltdown that can be caused by life or existential stressors or grief or a severe exacerbation of an anxiety disorder, such as OCD. Finally, patients with a severe anxiety or trauma-fueled depression with suicidality and or severe impairment in functioning, they too are often excellent candidates. So in short, positive prognostic factors for psychedelic ketamine include severe depression with more hypersomnia than insomnia, severe vegetative symptoms, especially cognitive impairment and psychomotor slowing, suicidality, seasonal worsening, and endogenous slash bipolar characteristics. Less than ideal patients have mild to moderate anxiety-fueled depression with insomnia primarily, or dysthymia, or depression arising from OCD or its related disorders, or depression arising from primary anxiety disorders, or an eating disorder. Now, ketamine can sometimes be helpful for these, but not nearly as reliably or dramatically as with the most endogenously depressed. Again, we should think of psychedelic, fully dissociative ketamine as being most helpful for the most depressed patients with prominent vegetative symptoms, especially when suicidality is present. Now, who is unlikely to benefit from ketamine? That would be patients who are much more anxious than depressed, whether this is anxiety fueled by neuroticism or an OCD spectrum disorder or even substance abuse. Ketamine, and this is a key point, ketamine primarily works on depression, not anxiety, and more specifically on depression with prominent vegetative qualities. Now, ketamine can alleviate OCD crises for sure, but typically only for a few days. An exception to this is anxiety arising from trauma and PTSD. Now, ketamine does seem to reset the fight-flight response and bring traumatized patients substantial anxiety relief for days to weeks. Because one of ketamine's primary mechanisms of action is the enhancement of both slow-wave deep sleep and REM sleep, patients with untreated or poorly treated sleep apnea are unlikely to get lasting, meaningful response to ketamine. And also, patients who don't get on board with a healthy and consistent sleep schedule also don't get nearly as much lasting benefit from ketamine. Who is not a good candidate for psychedelic ketamine? Since patients with suicidality arising out of borderline personality disorder can destabilize even further with fully dissociative ketamine, a note here, go back and listen to the Delta Flight Attendant episode to hear the gory details of this. I would recommend starting with lower dose cap first to assess response. Also, patients with cardiac issues or poorly managed hypertension need an assessment by an anesthesiologist or cardiologist prior to higher-dose ketamine. Arguably, the most missed medical diagnosis in outpatient psychiatric settings is obstructive sleep apnea. And even mild untreated sleep apnea can greatly diminish the duration of any benefit from ketamine. A classic pattern I've seen a lot in my clinic is someone comes in, 
gets a really positive response for a day or two, and then they plunge back into depression, we do a better sleep history and find out that they have either poorly treated or untreated sleep apnea. I often tell my patients, a ketamine treatment is a compost dump into the garden of you, but you still have to get out and work the garden. Ketamine is just the first step. Ketamine can set up the conditions for growth and healing, but if the patient is living a profoundly depressogenic life, ketamine is not going to work. For example, a patient without work, without meaning or purpose, ketamine might give them a temporary lift to their mood and energy. But unless they move forward towards developing some structure and meaning in their life, the compost is going to go to waste. Similarly, a patient who's totally alone, with no love or close supports in their life, is unlikely to get meaningful ongoing benefit from ketamine. I tell my patients I'm much more interested in them functioning better as opposed to just feeling better. Mood follows action. Meaningful and lasting gains necessitate changes in behavior. Improved functioning looks like better structure, better sleep hygiene and sleep quality, more movement and exercise, new and improved relationships, and or better self-care. But using ketamine for someone with no love, no work, no close connections, no meaningful engagement, it's just unlikely to shift the needle towards health. Let me say a bit more about how and when to use ketamine for PTSD. Ketamine can dial down the depression that often emerges from PTSD. It can alleviate suicidality from PTSD. And very interestingly, it can pull patients out of a persistent sympathetic fight-flight panic state or a parasympathetic freeze-numbing state. As with treatment-resistant depression, psychedelic ketamine is not a fix, not a cure for PTSD, but rather it's a way to put out the fire for a time and buy patients a measure of relative peace. Ketamine has very few meaningful medication interactions. Perhaps the most common and important one is with lamotrigine. Patients who consistently respond to lamotrigine, those with a hypersomnic, seasonal, recurrent depressive illness, also tend to be very strong responders to ketamine. So in my practice, the majority of patients doing ketamine treatments are also on lamotrigine. Lamotrigine appears to both help and hinder ketamine. Like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, ketamine helps meds work better. It's typically not a replacement for meds. And this is a critical point, because many patients come to me wanting to get off their psych meds and do ketamine instead, but this rarely works, though they often can reduce the number of meds they take. Patients on ketamine monotherapy tend to relapse to depression much sooner than patients who are also on appropriate medications, such as lamotrigine. However, lamotrigine also blocks some of the subjective and dissociative effects of psychedelic ketamine, acting in essence like a bobber to pop patients up and out of the psychedelic state. In order to get patients into full dissociation and keep them there for a time, I have my patients skip two doses of lamotrigine prior to a treatment, then restart it immediately afterward. This brings the lamotrigine blood level down before the treatment, but keeps them on a med which over the long term appears to often have a very useful synergy with ketamine. Patients on lamotrigine, even after skipping two doses, typically need 15 to 20% more ketamine to reach the desired state. And if patients forget to skip lamotrigine, the dose will likely need to increase by 20 to 30%. If we don't dose high enough to break through the bobber effect of the lamotrigine, the ketamine treatment will be minimally effective at best. Another major medication interaction is with opioids, including buprenorphine. One of ketamine's key mechanisms is resensitizing the opioid receptors, which serves to make the patient's own endorphins more effective at soothing them. 
opioids, including suboxone, buprenorphine, they prevent this resensitization and thus block the deep and very welcome sense of relative calm that patients report in the days after higher dose psychedelic treatments. For my first two years, I did exclusively IM or intramuscular treatments in my office. I gave the shot in the deltoid, which is kind of funny because I hadn't given a shot since medical school. So my medical assistant had to, had to teach me again how to give a shot. So I gave the shot and I sat through the whole session and learned a ton about what to do and what not to do. It took months and catching a whole lot of vomit in various receptacles before I finally wised up and realized that many of my patients needed a scopolamine patch, that ondansetron Zofran was not enough to present the nausea that can arise when coming out of psychedelic ketamine. This is because ketamine nausea is typically a result of motion sickness, as ketamine at these doses is typically a wild, plunging, spinning ride. And patients prone to motion sickness, they need prophylaxis with scopolamine. I also learned that men over 50 very commonly have a vigorous and at times frightening spike in blood pressure with psychedelic ketamine doses. And after a number of fairly scary experiences, I learned to pre-dose men over 50 with 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams of clonidine, as well as any of my patients with pre-existing hypertension. Both in the minimal clinical literature and in my experience, there doesn't appear to be any meaningful difference in efficacy between intramuscular and intravenous ketamine. The key factor is the dose and whether the patient reaches full dissociation, losing their body in the room and entering that space of pure disembodied awareness. The meaningful differences between IM and IV treatments start with the patient experience. IM has much more rapid onset and, it, and is a wilder ride, whereas the IV drip can be dialed in to patient preference. In terms of safety, IV easily trumps IM as an IV can be slowed down or turned off while the IM intramuscular dose is one and done with no way to stop it. Many of my current ketamine maintenance patients started with IM and now do infusions, and most all of them tell me that they prefer the infusions. A side note here, with the intramuscular injections, people were constantly talking, saying all sorts of funny things like, are my teeth floating outside of my mouth? Am I dead? Wait, I'm dead. Dr. Heacock, am I dead? I'm dead, right? Am I dead? Wait. Am I hanging upside down from the ceiling? Wait, Heacock, are you seeing what I'm seeing? <laughs> um, but so that was the first two years. But now with the infusions, they're rarely words, just some sighs or gulps or tears. These days, I typically start my patients at 0.75 milligram per kilogram, dripped in over 35 to 40 minutes. For some patients, this is a fully dissociative dose, but for most it is not. But in either case, this is a very therapeutic dose, which can start to move the needle in a meaningful way, even for patients in a hopeless suicidal state. And then I follow this treatment with a second one, ideally within five to seven days, with the goal of reaching full dissociation, which is typically 0.85 to 0.9 milligram per kilogram. There's one group of patients who often need a higher dose, say 1 to 1.2 milligram per kilogram to reach full dissociation. And these are women with a history of childhood sexual abuse. The thought here is that they are very prone to the parasympathetic freeze response and can unconsciously block much of the ketamine experience by marshalling an endogenous opioid response, which effectively blocks much of the dissociative experience of ketamine. By doing just two treatments, one at or near the dissociative threshold, and the other one being a fully psychedelic disembodied one, I found I can quickly determine if patients are going to be responders or not, 
and we can head off hospital stays and suicide attempts. I found that my ketamine patients tend to fall into one of three groups. So group one, these are people who do two or three infusions during a time of depressive or trauma crisis, and then they typically return to their usual level of functioning. Then I have a second group that returns periodically after the initial two infusions to do as-needed treatments, most commonly in the winter months or just prior to a trauma anniversary. And then the final group is one with chronic relapsing treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, and these folks typically do maintenance treatments every four to eight weeks on an ongoing basis. While we still don't know for sure whether full dissociation is crucial for optimal treatment efficacy, I hear this from my patients all the time. Even those patients who find the treatments unpleasant or even kind of scary will routinely ask for a higher dose if they didn't reach full dissociation with the prior treatment, as the duration of effects is one to two weeks less if the treatment was subdissociative. This is a huge point. One to two weeks less euthymia if they don't reach full dissociation. That's what I've been seeing in my 3,000 treatments. I have all my ketamine patients text me with regular updates after the treatments, and this has been an invaluable tool for me to monitor the outcomes of what happens with subdissociative versus fully dissociative treatments. Another very important question is whether post-treatment therapy or integration is always necessary. Now, with lower-dose psycholytic cap, the goal of the ketamine is to assist and deepen the therapy, to open up the unconscious, to fortify that therapeutic relationship. But with higher-dose psychedelic ketamine, while these are all possible goals, I would argue they're not necessarily front and center. I see psychedelic ketamine as primarily a power wash of the brain, as a control-alt-delete of a gummed-up psyche as a compost dump in exhausted soil. Some of my psychedelic ketamine patients find psychotherapy or EMDR or somatic work in the hours and days after a ketamine session to be very productive. But others say that the treatment's enough as a standalone and that within 24 to 48 hours, their overwhelm is gone, the hopelessness is abated, resilience is restored, they can return to their healthier ways of being. While not all my ketamine patients are doing specific courses of therapy after each treatment, I do ask everyone to lean into their healthier selves in these fertile days after an infusion. Again, action follows mood. I urge patients to do the things they would normally do when they're healthy, whether that's walk the dog, go to spin class, or be out of bed by 8 a.m. And as I described before, my primary goal with psychedelic ketamine is to improve functioning, whether this means an improved sleep schedule, or more exercise and activity, returning to work or school, or re-engaging in relationships. These behavioral goals are the equivalent of working the garden after the compost dump, taking advantage of the especially fertile soil to foster or return to healthier ways of being in the world. Finally, a caveat. Ketamine is usually safe and well-tolerated, but things can go amiss, and when they do, it can be very dramatic. I've had a patient bring a box cutter to the session and try to suicide just when the ketamine was taking effect. I've had a patient rip off their eye shades and throw me to the ground. I've had patients try to punch themselves or gouge their forearms as they were coming out of their sessions. My assistant has been shoved into the wall. Both she and I have had to hold patients down so they didn't hurt themselves or us. Ketamine is serious business and we need to respect its power. I so hope you found this helpful. It was a really interesting process for me to put my thoughts together on these complicated questions around ketamine treatment. And I'd love to hear any of your thoughts or feedback regarding these observations. As always, 
You can reach out to me and Chris through my website, craigheacockmd.com. <laughs>